Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Today we have an action-packed podcast. We've got not one, not two, but three different people we're going to talk to on this, what is the month, May? May wrap-up. First, we're going to talk with... Dr. Derek McNeil. He's up at the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology. We're going to have just a brief conversation with him about a little bit of the stuff that they're doing up there. Now, if you don't know Seattle School, it'll be great if you learn about them. We also have Sarah Barton. Uh, this is the last podcast I've recorded out in Malibu at the Pepperdine University Lectures. And uh, Sarah's the first time uh, a person of the female gender got up and did a keynote. And so it's kind of a big deal for the tradition I'm a part of. You might find it interesting because you want to know what? It is interesting. And then the last part, the last 40 minutes or so, is me and my dad doing the traditional wrap-up. We're talking about all things Rob Bell, Richard Beck, and some more. So before we get to our friend Dr. Derek McNeil from the Seattle School, let me remind you, the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology believes that who you are is essential to the work you're called to do. Their embodied and a relational approach trains the whole person for their unique role in transforming the world. The Seattle School offers graduate degrees in divinity, counseling, psychology, and theology and culture, and professional development certificates for new parish leaders and lay counselors. You can learn more at theseattleschool.edu. So go check them out, theseattleschool.edu. And without further ado, here is our first guest, Derek McNeil. Then we're going to go right into Sarah Barton in about six or seven minutes, and then we're going to do the last 40 minutes with my dad. So let's get ready for some awesome fun. Uh, welcome back to the show, friends. Today we have joining us from our sponsor this month, the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology. We have with us Dr. Derek McNeil. Thanks for taking the time to talk with me, Derek. Yes, well, you're very welcome. It's great to kind of just chat about the school and um, answer a few questions. Outstanding. Now, your your background is really interesting to me because you have both an MDiv from Fuller and a PhD in counseling psychology. So it's interesting the intersection that you have in your own personal life about theology and psychology. How did, uh, how did you go from having an MDiv to getting a PhD in counseling psychology? Um, good question. I think, interesting enough, um, the, the pull to do both had more to do with a sense of mission hmm. than a sense of trying to mingle disciplines. And I, I actually probably put a plug in for the school. I think the same thing. There's a set of questions you ask. Um, for instance, if you're asking, how do people heal? Okay. And that's not an ideological question as much as a practice question. It's a question of what sort of tools can you bring for the healing of people um, and for the wholeness making of people. And I think both psychology and theology have much to offer on that. Yeah. Um, I think the tension has always been because you had two disciplines, and particularly in a modern context where... Uh, you were warring over what ideology would be the dominant ideology. In other words, what basis of truth would you adhere to? Well, then you're going to have a natural fight because they have discontinuities. They don't always fit neatly together. Um, they hold different sets of assumptions. But I think if you push past into the human question, the question of how do you respond to trauma? Mm -hmm. How do you respond to suffering? How do you respond to the sort of the human condition? Um, then I think both have places where they intersect. No. Yeah, that I, I, yeah, and I think that's also where the school began. I think the school, at least on some level, is asking, you know, I hear this sort of question, how do you get out of the Christian ghetto? And I think, and, but then I think the other question was, how do you, how do you, um, what, is, what makes for peace? 
And I think um, we've moved into the what makes for peace question, um, shalom lost, shalom restored questions. And I think both psychology and theology um, attempt to speak to that from certainly different directions and certainly different perspectives. Yeah, definitely. Now, as I was telling you off mic, um, my dad's a psychologist, and as a pastor, I find myself often calling him up and saying, all right, Dad, give me, the, give me a read on the situation. Give me, yes. give me what's yeah. going on, the, the backstory, yeah. and what yeah. I should be asking. But not everyone has that resource, and so I love the way that you guys are trying to bring both of those together. So if you're, uh, say, a young minister thinking about going back, getting a master's degree, or, or getting uh, more education, how do you guys bring those two together in the, uh, the, the training process for people going into that, that career? Yeah, first and foremost, I think we kind of require everybody, whether you're going to be a pastor or a counselor or an artist, that we ask you to go through a process of looking at yourself, looking at your own story, looking at the places that you have been wounded that will shape your um, ministry, um, shape your counseling, shape your art, shape your work. And so um, we have a thing called practicum. And so year-long um, investment in your narrative, your story. Who are you? And people listen to you say who you are. And so there's a huge um, formational emphasis. And, you know, I think if, we, if I pushed it into a psychological sort of language, I might say we're, we're interested in increasing your social and emotional intelligence. Okay. If I pushed it into kind of a theological or spiritual formation language, we say we're interested in your forming, your shaping. Um, and so that's one. That's an important tool for us. I think that we also ask students, um, whether you're going into counseling or ministry, to take counseling courses as well as take theology courses, um, to be thinking reflectively about, um, again, what, what is the narrative of God and how do our narratives fit the narrative of God. Conversely, also, what, what sort of things um, get in the way of our serving God in a psychological sense? Um, what sort of dynamics impact human relationships that get in the way? So we're asking our students to think about both those things from different aspects. And again, as you can hear, we've moved away, or at least we didn't begin with some of the questions of, is, you know, does, is, is it okay to be a psychologist and a Christian? which I think were the earlier conversations about integration. And then the conversation became, is it okay for, um, you know, to, 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 for a scientist to be a Christian? I mean, so we had to face Christ- the church to say it's okay to be engaged in psychology, and then facing the discipline to say it's okay to be a psychologist and a Christian. I think now we've kind of moved past some of that, because we have so many complex and wicked problems in the world that it really requires a question of what tools can we bring for human healing. Yeah, that's good. And, and it's great to hear here you guys deconstructing that that antiquated notion that these are separate things that you can't do together, and it's great to hear more yeah. of a holistic approach. Tell me yeah. uh, some of the the careers that you find your students. You, you obviously talked about counselors, artists, pastors. What are some of your alumni doing these days? Um, you know, most who go through the counseling are doing some level of counseling, but not exclusively. I think we have folk in a variety of different directions, as well as people who go through the MDiv, specifically focused to be a pastor degree, we'd probably try to emphasize leadership rather than just simply kind of direct pastoral ministry. Yeah. And then we have a degree, a Master's of Theology and Culture, um, and it doesn't directly tell people what profession they'll engage when they graduate, but it suggests that as artists, um, whether they be musicians, whether it be writers, whether it be people interested in drama, that there's a theological reflection in that, in that space of the commons, in the space of the public arena, 
um, as well as social entrepreneurs. What you know, not just simply I want to do good for people, but what theologically? How do you think about that reflectively? So we actually find our you know our, our students you know those who are geared towards ministry will at least find themselves in ministry in some sense, even though it might not be traditional church ministry. Mm-hmm. And those who are interested in counseling will also find themselves in counseling. But you know, for instance, I can think about our. Our vice president of advancement, and she's counseling psychology background in our school. So I think we recognize that the people skills um, are essentially important um, at, for for building, um, for supporting people, for nurturing, for healing, and again for shalom. So a variety, actually a variety of pieces. But again, there's two degrees that really push you into traditional directions. Even though our students um, will do ch- church planning and other sorts of ministry-oriented things um, with the degrees when they finish. Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, Derek, thanks for your time, and I'll uh, I'll make sure people know that they can go to theseattleschool.edu for more information and uh, keep up the good work. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks, Luke. All right. Let's uh, give me a little bit more. Talk to me. Talk. 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 In your relationships with one another, have the same attitude of mind Christ Jesus had. This is the Bible Who verse. Who the very nature God did not, did not consider, consider equality with God, God something to be used exploited. to his own advantage. Exploited. Rather, he made himself, himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, servant being found made in... You're messing me up. I'm being doing made. the right translation. That's <laughs> I do TNIV. Well, that's the wrong one. Clearly, <laughs> the conservatives said that that's a terrible translation, so you can't use it. Okay, we're going to go ahead and okay. start. Um Welcome back to the show, friends. Today, today we have with us, returning to the show for the second, third, second, third time, third time, mm-hmm. Sarah G-, G G Gaston Barton Barton Sarah Barton. Excited to have you back on the show. It's good to be here. Now, welcome we, to my office. <laughs> we are in your office. We've recorded. Uh, this is the third one we've recorded here. It's last last year, Pepperdine, we recorded in Jen Hale's office. Now we're in yours. We've moved up in the Welcome. world. No offense, Welcome. Jen Hale Christie. <laughs> Did I call her Jen Hale? Jen was, Hale Christie. She's got uh-huh. a new last name since mm-hmm. I originally met her. She got married. Um, I've heard you talk a whole lot today. I have been talking all day. A lot of talking. Mm-hmm. First, you did uh, the keynote. Most importantly, though, you did a forum with me just like four seconds ago. That's right. And I'm being sarcastic. That's not nearly as important. You did a keynote the first time. All of it's important. Yes, but here's the Equally. thing. You don't want to talk about doing the keynote. I know you don't. Because you just want to say it was just a keynote. And by doing that, you normalize what you did and not making it a big deal says, hey, we're just moving forward. It's no big deal. Christ is neither male nor female. We can do keynotes if we're women. We're moving forward. But it is a big deal. So you want to talk about it, huh? <laughs> I, I'm not saying. It's just, it's a big deal. I'll talk about it if you want to talk about well, it. I, I, can we? Yeah, we can talk okay, about it. So Since we're now recording and you <laughs> you wrote me into this. Yes, I'll talk about it. You're in your office. I mean, I came to your turf, so it's not like I'm really that intrusive. All right, I'll answer your questions, okay. and then I'll decide if okay. I want you to delete it or not. You, and you know what? You always have the right, the okay. right of first refusal. My uh, my man, Richard Rohr. You like mm. Richard Rohr? You know his stuff? I do. Okay, so you know his stuff about ritual. Like, mm-hmm. we are a ritual, like, deprived, like, world like especially mm-hmm. in america like we don't we don't do that and there's uh there are definitely some side effects of that and so like this is kind of a like a, a big deal and i feel like let's let's celebrate it mm-hmm. because it is i mean it's yeah. like we there are a lot of people who like we were just talking before like everyone's appreciative of what you did and they're clapping for you but mm-hmm. in a sense like they're clapping for everyone who's worked towards 
moving forward in this. Yeah, that's that's where I do feel like it's a big deal. It's a big deal for people who've been working, thinking about this for 30 years, long before I ever thought about it, um, and who've made it possible for me to do what I did today. But I really did feel like it was a, uh, you know, it takes a village kind yeah. of experience. Yeah, and I, I'm sure that you could think of 10 people off the top of your head that have been working for this for for years and decades mm-hmm. and you in a lot of ways get to experience the fruit of their labor so much that way i could see several of them there today Rhonda lowry uh, i had lunch with her today oh she's so i never great. met her before she's outstanding she's so great and so that she could be here um her mother actually fell and was hurt and so that she could be here randy took off work made it possible to stay with her mother so that Rhonda could come out and be here and yeah. um i so appreciated her, um, Diesta Love. I mean, the problem is if you start naming names, you know. You'll forget someone. You'll forget somebody. But just, just so many people who've been thinking about this and working on it long before I have. Okay. Can I tell you, like, the most human, like, the, the most, like, real human thing that I experienced, mm-hmm. like, the whole time I've been out here. And I'll definitely cut this if you tell me to cut this. Mm-hmm. But your son was sitting right in front of you. Mm-hmm. And when you got off the stage, I was sitting right behind you. Yeah. Which you might not have seen me because you were... Yeah, like you don't really care about me. Mm-hmm. I care about you. Or, or you're just <laughs> but I busy. I didn't notice. <laughs> so I'm sitting right behind you. So as you mm-hmm. walk off, I see him look at you, and your son is in college. He's 21. He's 21. He's a grown man. Mm-hmm. He's a grown man, and he saw his mama preach on the stage because you're mm-hmm. st- you're you're Sarah G. Barton, but you're just mama mm-hmm. to him. Yep. You're not like soon to be Doctor Barton. Mm-hmm. You're his mama. You're not like yeah. preacher. You're just your mama. And Mama just walked off stage, and he had tears in his eyes. He did. And you sit down, and I see him turn around, and he looks at you, and I got choked up. And it was just, so, it was just like he had genuine, like mm-hmm. I don't know what word he'd use to describe it, but it was just like genuine love. And he seemed so proud of you, and it was just, it was the sweetest thing. I, I, my my children being there, it was was so so special to me. Um, and Nate doesn't cry easily. I think that's the third time since he was a kid oh, I'm that sorry, I've ever I just seen him cry. Him out. It's okay. He's tough. Uh, he's used to be talking about him. He'll be, he, he'll be, he, that is, I think what was meaningful to him was not just about me being a woman and doing it. I think the message that I preached today. Yeah. It was uh, a great sermon. Him. I yeah. think that was some of it is he's very soft hearted, um, when it comes to the poor, the marginalized, uh, our connections to Africa. I think I haven't gotten to ask him yet, but in his eyes, that's what I, that's what I thought I saw. I had a really great experience with my daughter before we left the house today. She was driving me down to the field house and Uh before we left, um, she said, wait a minute, mom, I want to pray for you. And she put her arms around me. We stood in our living room and she prayed the greatest prayer. Um, can you, can you say what she said? Are, my kids are, she just prayed that God would be with me and, Mm. and thanked God for me. Um, She's, she just prayed a very, very kind and wonderful prayer. Um, so both of my kids. Yeah. yeah. Now, the weird thing that you guys had to preach James. And I say it's weird because. Had to preach James? Oh, I, we get to. We got to preach James. Yeah. We get to. Mm-hmm. Well, you didn't know you had to. You were assigned that text. But I know multiple people have said to say had Lauren Winter, mm-hmm. your friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, R- Rob says that. And the podcast that I will be airing in like three days, which Mm -hmm. you haven't heard yet, but all my listeners have. And so it's like this weird meta thing that we're experiencing right now that I don't know why I'm riffing on this. But, okay, you're supposed to say you get to. But I said you had to because that's a a signed Mm -hmm. text. Mm -hmm. And it seems like to me like the book of James is a really hard book to preach like as a one cohesive unit because it seems like it's kind of like the New Testament Proverbs. Mm -hmm. And so I've always been like, eh, like you referenced James, but like 
preaching it as it's like there's like one continuous argument seems like it's a little bit of a flawed endeavor. Is that you think it's a fair take? Um, I think that's the reputation of James, but okay. I think once you read and study it, you can find these themes that run through James, um, and you start seeing him him return. I mean, at first when I read James, I I, I had this uh, I didn't talk a lot about referring to James overall there just wasn't time to talk about what James is doing overall but I I was thinking that James in many ways is very tweetable you know like there are little things all within James yeah Yeah. you just see a tweet here a tweet there a tweet everywhere everywhere tweet 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 from James because of all those little things but I think when you go back and you look at the sections and you start to find out what he's doing and where and why you start to see these really strong Mm -hmm. themes and I think as a prophet, I think that he probably got so caught up in what he was doing. Well, he's a prophet. Oh, I think he's prophetic. Yeah. I Why do you think he's a prophet? Uh, he's referred to as the Amos of the New Covenant. Who told so, him? Who called him that? Witherington, Ben Witherington, his, the third, uh, in his commentary, oh. James. And so I think okay, that's I think that's prophetic. I think a lot of the prophets tend to do that. I mean, you get mm-hmm. going on people. You know, mm-hmm. you're going to go on this topic and go on that topic. But I think overall, this theme of love for neighbor is so strong yeah. in, in, in James. Um, one of the things I learned about James as I was studying was that some people kind of give James a hard time because he, he doesn't refer to Jesus or he doesn't quote Jesus um, yeah. exactly in some of the ways we expect. But what I think he's doing is he is so immersed in the words of Jesus. He so knows who Jesus is and how Jesus talks that he starts talking like him. He yeah. starts speaking like him. And so I started thinking that's what we're supposed to be doing in our context, in our time. We're supposed to be so immersed in the words of Jesus and in, in what God is doing through Jesus that we're able to just start talking in our context. Um, and it sounds like, just like, like Jesus. Jesus would. Yeah. And so I think he sounds like Jesus when he speaks. I think he, you know, that's what I loved about learning. I didn't know that much about James before this started because we've neglected it um, in Christian history. So that's one of the things I love. And learning. it was my fault because I'm encouraging that because I don't really want to preach it. Oh, I like it. I think you should. I could. Oh, so many good sections. Yeah. That you could. Yeah. That you could go with. Well, you have one of the my favorite sections in there, which is the, the mist part, mm-hmm. which you had. Yeah. You did the mist and then you did. uh and, and I see Ben Weatherington on your oh yeah right desk here. right there. Good mm-hmm. job. You're serious about that. <laughs> and so you have the, the the life is a mist, and then you have the the rich people saying mm-hmm. you're going to go this place mm-hmm. and go to that place, mm-hmm. but anyone says they're going to go this place and that you know they mm-hmm. sin. Anyone yeah. who knows the good they have to do doesn't do it. Sin. Okay, that's mm-hmm. like that was yeah. the end of the the section mm-hmm. or the pericope, if you would mm-hmm. like to call yeah. it that, since you're yeah. soon to be Doctor Doctor Barton, which I get that. And I've I've loved the mist part. Mm-hmm. And I always do that on Ash Wednesday mm-hmm. because it reminds us of the brevity of our life. Oh, yeah. That's perfect. For yeah. Yeah. I always yeah. go back to that one then. It's a good idea. But you, you had this like you, you centered it on the idea. It's, it's really like love neighbor. Mm-hmm. And you tell this terrifying story of your experience in the mission field. And you were – how long were you? We were and you got to eight years. Eight years. Mm-hmm. And so you talk about how they sell – coffins on the side of the road in kiosks and they don't just have adult six foot coffins like you would expect on the side of the road they have little boxes child size yeah and which i've never done a a child's funeral and i am 
uh, grateful that I haven't mm-hmm. ever had to do that at, up until this point, and I'm terrified of having to because mm-hmm. just the idea of uh, a, a room full of people mourning in a little box up front yeah. is terrifying. And then you told me you said a stat, which is just staggering. Um, for for moms and dads in Uganda, there's a 20% chance yeah, that one in five children yeah. will not live to see a fifth birthday. My goodness. After that, you know, they it's better. But, um, yeah, one in five, one in five children. So we went to so many children's uh funerals it was so difficult and things that you know here we could take care of you know here could be addressed um it's just so you're not just crying because a child has died in a terrible accident it's things that are treatable things that could be addressed it it's what, just so difficult what is that like for you to see that because you know what's available and you know if it's just a shot of penicillin or one antibiotic which you go get at cvs for four dollars mm-hmm. And you know the people who lost their kids over something that if it was you, you could get on a plane yeah. and have it fixed like that. Um, there were times when we were able to step in and help. And that that's a good feeling. Of course, and, yeah. you know, through, you know, what God has given us, we were able to help and get a child to a hospital. But so many times it was too late. Um, it was so hard. I had one situation where I saw a baby in Uganda um, – that was malnourished and you don't see that very much Uganda is they're not dying of malnourishment there it's other diseases and um I saw a malnourished baby and I wondered why and I started asking questions and even this wasn't someone we knew I just was in a village with friends and then and so I started asking all my friends what's wrong with that baby why is that happening and um everyone was really like, no, we don't need to ask questions. And they were trying to get me away from the situation. I didn't understand why. Anyway, it turned out that it was all wrapped up in um, a very, very difficult family situation. And the the family was convinced that because this woman's three previous children had died, that this one would die. And so they weren't even trying oh, to do anything. Goodness. And so they believed there was a curse on her. And so um, they weren't going to do anything, even when, if it was malaria, malaria could be treated. So they, this baby was dying. And I don't think it's because they didn't love the child. They just so believed. And so I, when I found out that was true, I just got it in my mind. I have to do something. I, can, I couldn't convince them myself to take the baby um, to a hospital. So I went and got a friend who I thought could convince them, and he did. Um, we took the baby to a hospital, but he ended up dying anyway. And, 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 um, I was driving the vehicle and the little mm-hmm. boy was there in the same, in the car and the a nurse was holding him in the passenger seat. We were trying to get him to another hospital where we heard that they had his blood type. And, um, so those, he, he, those, yeah, he, so he died right there, literally right. watched him. She said, pull over. So I pulled over and we, and the mom and the mother watched him die. And, um, it was, it's awful. So taking him back to that village, you could, when we drove up, it was night. Um, when we got back, when we got there, no lights or anything anywhere. And you could hear people coming out of, from, from miles away because they knew and word got around very quickly. They were coming and they were just crying and grieving so loudly, um, through the dark of the night, these sounds of grief those those grie- th- those kinds of cries are going on i mean 17,000 children die a day in this world that kind of crying is going on right now because a baby has died for treatable with yeah. treatable causes um 
I mean, it's 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 overwhelming. I think that's one of the things that my sermon wasn't able to do is say, okay, here's so so here's what we do about it. I actually had several people come and say, I'm trying, I'm trying to help some people. Um, I'm trying to help some homeless people that I know. I'm trying yeah, to. Yeah. They have picked one. Yeah, and there was, they have picked one, and it's hard. And you that's know? what you're hoping to do, and that's what you're trying to accomplish with the sermon. Mm-hmm. When you're when you're there in this village, the uh, the kid dies in your while you're driving. Mm-hmm. What what's going on in your head that night? You go home at that point. Were you, your kids? They were probably they were. Um, let's un, see, probably about teenagers. five and yeah. seven yeah. at the time. And so they're not that much. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're this, basically the same age almost. And like, what, what do you what do you do when you go home from that? It's really difficult because you know we are so wealthy that if something happened to one of my kids, I could not only afford to drive them to the doctor and pay for the medicine or or. I could have a helicopter brought in to take them to Nairobi or to take them to, Mm. you know, Europe to take, I could have that, that could, that's within, that's what happens for us. And it doesn't happen for others. Um, I mean, it's, I think I lived with a lot of guilt for a while when we lived there, but you can't, you can't do anything if you're just immersed in guilt. Um, some people, the the guilt of having, so much being so wealthy i mean we are so 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 wealthy i i mean you know a lot of people in the world wouldn't think that i'm really really rich yeah uh, you know in in a, the western world wouldn't call me really really rich i mean we drive a ford escape we don't drive a you know nice cars, <laughs> yeah they're yeah. nice cars <laughs> yeah. but but you guys work at christian university we have good jobs and- we are so wealthy by the world standards um and there's like so a sense of guilt that you have so much and, and the inequality not being on the bottom side but on the mm-hmm. top side of that yeah is uh yeah so even when i think about preaching a lesson that convicts or um challenges rich people i mean me too i mean me too i mean we are rich rich yeah. people yeah it's it's easy to look around and go well i don't have x y and z so mm-hmm. i'm i'm not the rich yeah. person but what if if you make like over thirty some thousand, you're in the top one percent. Yep. I mean, it's some. Mm-hmm. Don't quote me on that. Obviously, yeah. that's not accurate, but it's something like that. And mm-hmm. it's, um, we're rich, rich people. Yeah. And so James has. I oh, mean, one a, of the hardest things about James is he's saying, "Give it up, give it away." I mean, he's not just saying. Maybe Use that's it why I don't want to read James. Yeah. Maybe mm-hmm. that's why you don't want to preach James. Maybe that's it. Yeah. I just wanted to deal with that. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's probably it. That's really it. So. <clears throat> So you're you're back in the states now. You've been mm-hmm. back for a while. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm so stuck. That was obviously the image that was most dominant to me. That I just mm-hmm. I, I couldn't yeah. get past. Do you? Does it ever kind of wear off? Like the like the the guilt or the sense of. I don't think I feel guilty all the time anymore. I I don't I don't know if you just become. Numb. I don't think I'm numb. I don't think I am. I think that we've made decisions about what we are going to do to help, and we are following through with that. Um, we have a nonprofit organization called Kibo Group, and uh, not just John and me, but a group of us. And um, we're doing some, we're really making some, uh, making a difference. We're really helping some people, and we're doing it in partnership with local Uganda, with Ugandans who are stepping into leadership just the way that we had imagined 10, 12 years ago. Um, it's really, really exciting work. Hmm. So being able to talk about that and be involved in those ways. Um, and sometimes we just pick one. We don't just help it with it through an organization. Sometimes we pick one and it's hard to pick one, but, um, what do you mean pick one? 
uh, like pick one person to help because you cannot help everybody. Because you can't fix the entire. And it, that's yeah. those are hard things. We had a friend who was um, dying with he had HIV and he was dying, and at that time in Uganda you could get, um, you know, uh, AIDS medication, and um, it was it was available when we left there. We sold a four wheel drive vehicle and got. I don't know, $12,000 for it. And it was enough to buy that medication for four years at the time. And so we went and we bought medication for Patrick, this one person, for four years. And he lived about five years after we left. Um, and hmm. it, it, the medicine got a little less expensive as we went along. So it actually lasted throughout his life. We didn't come to the point where it ran out. But... uh we picked one and and whether that's good or bad or right or wrong we picked one at one point that is ridiculous to think that your car bought someone five years of their son five years of life husband or their father Uh, five years was the price of your car yeah that's pretty and that's what i mean it's true all the time but how do we you know how do we keep doing that um we do personally in some ways we try to we try to prioritize that but there's obviously always more we could do and i know that um but we try to stay really aware the the painful thing is that you can't do everything you can't you can't fix the world mm-hmm. you can't save it and and there's a, a paralysis that comes on because of the sense of inability to accomplish enough but i love the simplicity of what you're arguing for and that's just do just do something like just pick one. I know it's yeah. It almost sounds shallow. Like just pick one. But I did that on purpose in my sermon because if every Christian did pick one, we would have we would not have the problems we have in the world. We would address so many of the things that are going wrong if we really did. If every Christian really did follow through um, in grassroots, I just think it has to be in grassroots yeah. type of ways. It can't be about these big picture things it's got to be neighbor to neighbor and person to person and um that's what people want to join that's and then more people want to become involved and um, i mean that's that was what happened in the when the holy spirit moved in yeah. in the early church yeah. yeah that's good that's good well i think it was a big deal that you do the keynote and i know you don't want to talk about it and i know that i kind of had to trick you to talk about it and i never said i was going to talk about it when we were doing the pre warm up for the podcast but i think it's important to talk about it and it is important now if you'd like you can ask me questions about the forum that i hosted which um you, feel free to, you mm-hmm. can go and ask me questions yeah. now if you want okay we're gonna cut that out okay good we'll no, just move on move on you, no so you uh anyway thanks for doing that you did great and uh it's nice being here in malibu because i think i've told you this before but being a friend of yours on twitter mm-hmm. And Facebook, like I see pictures of, hey, I'm looking at whales while mm-hmm. I'm eating dinner. Yeah. It's like, I hate you. <laughs> and I really don't, but like I feel like that sometimes. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like just to get that off my chest helps me. Well, I'm glad that you were able to confess something here today in the chaplain's office. Yeah, I feel so much better. And now this is billable hours for you. Oh, okay. Because I, I confess something. I don't something. bill my hours. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and now we are turning my dad to do a little wrap up welcome to the show dad well thank you it's good to be here i am glad you are there which is <laughs> <laughs> you're in aveline today you're at home i i am at home i'm in aveline now uh 
how, how should I interpret this? You will go to New Mexico to see <laughs> uh, your favorite uh, theologian, uh, and you'll go to uh, California to mm-hmm. hear your fa- favorite... Uh, I'm not sure what category <laughs> Brock go into. Man, he is all over the place. He reads all sorts of things. Yeah. What an intellectual guy. Uh-huh. Very articulate. And so... And then you just, you know, we're starting a little bit late, and I was standing at the door waiting for you, kind of like the story of the prodigal son. Wow. Well, isn't the story of the prodigal son having the father continually waiting for the child? So (laughs) it's working out. I'm giving you that opportunity. Yeah. So I. So I'll fly to Albuquerque to see Richard Rohr, and I'll go to California. I'll drive down to Laguna Beach to see Rob. But uh, you're just always in my heart, so I don't need to go anywhere because. You're always there. Oh, yeah, that isn't that nice. I was wondering if you're going to do this from your office because it would be kind of awkward to talk about a little bit of Richard Beck when he's right next door to you. <laughs> <laughs> that would... Yeah. Well, actually, he's probably uh, out of the country at the moment. I'm not quite sure where he is. He travels a lot and does a lot of speaking, so who knows where he is today. Okay, and well, that's good. That's good. Well, we're going to talk, uh, let's talk a little bit about that conversation with uh, old Richard Beck and Rob Bell. Okay, I'm ready to do that, unless I can ask you a question first. Okay, go ahead. Okay, well, you and I have had a chance to talk a little bit about your trip to Pepperdine when you did get to do this interview. Mm-hmm. And boy, I was privileged uh, to get a phone call, and you and I get to talk about the excitement about how the interview went. And now that I've listened to part one and two, I agree this is something to get excited about. <laughs> but I didn't get to hear so much about uh, some other things you did. I, I know you taught a class at Pepperdine. How did that go? Yeah, yeah, um, <clears throat> yeah. I did a forum about preaching to millennials, which was. Outstanding. Now, the best part about, I don't know if it was the best part, but one of the funniest things to me is first session in the front row, front and center, you're never going to guess who's sitting there. Mr. Okay, Ron, right. Ron Lawfrey, my oh, childhood my preacher, was sitting on the very front <laughs> row. I haven't seen him since I did grandma's wedding, and the last time before that was when I did grandpa's funeral. So I hadn't seen this guy in years, and yes, I did say I'd, I just did my grandma's funeral, which is a whole another story for another time. But he's sitting front and center, and <laughs> we're doing a, a panel on preaching to you know people born between 1980 and 2000, and there is a, a lady on the front row uh, who's on the uh, the forum with me, and her first comment is, as my childhood preacher sitting on the front row is, let's go ahead and get all the cursing out of the way right now because we have to do it. And my first thought was, we don't no, we don't have to do it. My my childhood preacher's three feet away from you, and I, I just I, I couldn't make eye contact when, well, yeah. So that was pretty awful. <laughs> or awesome, one of the two. I didn't know, but uh, no, no, no. It, that was. Uh, uh, well, that's part of communicating to the <laughs> millennials. Yeah, you have to use expletives, I guess. I I did not know that, but uh, well, they do have different meanings today than they did at one time. Yeah, because because words have evolved in meaning, and that's where they find their. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, sure, sure. 
But I just wasn't ready for that to be said right in front of my childhood preacher. There was some weird, like, I'm 14 and I can't say that in front of you. Or I didn't say it, but just a friend of mine said it. So that was that uh, funny. Yeah, that was. Well, you know who else I saw there? Do you remember uh, the doctor who was all over the news, I guess, last summer? Kent Brantley? Kent, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, the guy who, who caught Ebola and just was heroic with the way that he had previously and during that time handled it and, and was uh, helping others who were, who were suffering from it. Well, he and I went to ACU together. And I, I of course, saw him all over the news. He was on the cover of Time magazine and all over these places. Well, I'm walking around at Pepperdine and I see him and he's like, Hey Luke. And I'm like, Hey, Hey Kent. Um, how you, how you feeling? Um, I mean, I, I didn't know what to say to the guy that you had seen all over the news. Just, it was, mm-hmm. a, he was just, Hey Luke, how you doing? Oh, hey, I can't. Wow. So I, I think he's got a book actually coming out, uh, later this year or maybe later this summer. Hopefully I'll, we'll get to talk to him then and we'll say more than just awkward hellos. Well, boy, it's amazing how God has worked through that story. Not that I am implying that I know all of the ways, but some of the ways he's really impacted a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Now, one of the um, another cool thing that I, I was obviously at the Pepperdine University Bible Lectures, and then uh, the Praxis Conference down in Houston, which was our sponsor, I guess, two months ago. And I have a couple podcasts I've recorded down in Houston at the Praxis Conference, which I'll air next week, I think. And it was great to interact with so many people who listen to the podcast, who are friends of the show that I had never met before. And so it was great to meet so many people. So many of you who listen to this, it was just a lot of fun meeting you. Even the person who came up to me and said, Luke, my wife goes to bed with you every night. (laughs) As a way, I guess he was trying to say that his wife listens to the podcast every night before he she goes to bed, which I appreciate her listening to the podcast. I also would appreciate maybe a better way to phrase that, which wouldn't make me so uncomfortable. But regardless, it was great to meet so many of you people who listen to the show. Well, I'm, I'm going to put uh, Jimmy Fallon in your group. Uh, not that you're in his group. But <laughs> yeah, I don't know about Jimmy him. Fallon in your group, and I know a lot of people have said the same thing about him. That they go to bed with him every night? Yes. Yeah, that's sure. I'll, I'll take that. I'll... Definitely. I don't know uh, what to say about that, but thank you, Dad. Okay, so let's go back to what you are saying before. So I call okay. you when I'm flying back. I'm sitting in the airport waiting to get on my flight home. And I just talked to Rob a couple of days before, and I actually was in the very same part of LAX. That I, I think I called you the first time I talked to Rob when I was coming back, possibly. Mm-hmm. And, and you said, Luke, you kind of sound a little bit manic. Do you remember saying that? <laughs> yes, I remember saying that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, thanks, Dad. That's I've... not a pathological uh, description. Uh, if I were going to be a little more accurate, maybe hypomanic, but it, it is a state of uh, overall general excitement. <laughs> and you had a very specific reason for doing so. Um, so yeah. I got to share that excitement. <laughs> it was incredible. It was great. Now, if and you, that should be a compliment to you as well as to Rob and to Richard. I yeah. mean, I, I thought the three of you, uh, that was, uh, again, I enjoyed uh, listening to to both part one and two several times. Yeah, I thought I thought Richard did great. I thought, obviously, Rob, uh, brilliant as always. And one of the things that is just so amazing about 
Rob is that he was exactly the same when the mic was off as it was on. I mean, he was just as brilliant before we started recording as he was after. It was just so amazing. And I've been, I've, I've been around a lot of really impressive people and I don't right. like to categorize, you know, who's better or worse or who's more articulate or intelligent, but there are few people that I've ever interacted with that have that same sort of charisma and captivating presence that Rob has. I mean, they're just, I don't know anyone who, many people who can match that. Well, I've, I've never met him, but, uh, in, in my experience, I had somebody, uh, when actually, when I worked for a church in D.C., uh, Landon Saunders, and I assume most of your uh, audience probably have not heard of him. I would assume he's in his late 70s, if not early 80s at this point, but uh, he was a guy who developed a, a nationally syndicated program called Heartbeat. He developed a program called Feeling Good About Yourself. This guy was a visionary, he was articulate, he was well-read of philosophers, of psychologists, and of course he was trained in theology, and boy, Rob fits right into that category. I, I would say uh, Rob has a special gift to communicate to people that are probably, uh, and maybe this is archaic terminology, but that have grown up in church as well as people that are unchurched, people that are very intelligent, uh, yet he can be very so clear and detailed that I think uh, uh, people that are not in academia can really appreciate what he has to say. He's just, yeah. again, he's, a, he, he's, he's the number one speaker uh of, of that age group I, that I've heard so far. Yeah, I think now, he, his his language, he talks about simplicity after complexity. And I think that's what makes Bell so fascinating is because when I was in grad school, I had known the Numa guy. Like, I know, oh, he has, he has these videos. And then I started to, like, maybe I, I found a, a bibliography of, of recommended reading that he had put out or some books that he was referencing. And I was going, this guy's reading all the same stuff that I'm being forced to read in grad school and he's integrating it in such a way that's accessible to everyone. And that's what I think is so compelling because some people look at him and they say, oh, he doesn't, he doesn't read the Bible. He doesn't care about this or that. And I don't think they get what he's done. Like he has made it so simple, the complexity of really deep theology that they just miss that whole step. It's like there was a, uh, there's a pitcher for the Washington Nationals, uh, Steven Strasburg. He pitched, I think, like in San Diego when he was in college. And he was the clear-cut, absolute best pitcher in all of college baseball. And he was so good that he had a changeup that he couldn't throw because college batters couldn't even recognize the difference in his fastball to his changeup because his changeup was so good that people were just unable to even comprehend, oh, wait, he's slowing it down for us because it was so, such a good pitch. And I think some people, some people miss like how intelligent and how articulate Rob's theology is that they think he's just too simple. Well, if they, yeah, that's more about them than about Rob because I'm, I'm with you. I can really appreciate uh uh, some of the gifts that uh, that I'm able to uh, hear in Rob and the the podcast, not only the ones that he's done with Newsworthy with Northworthy, but also his Robcast. I've listened to seven of those. Oh, have you really? And, yeah, I have. 
And in fact, I would like to do a Robcast with him on, uh-huh. uh, he's got his seventh one is on changing tapes. Uh-huh. And since I teach uh, cognitive restructuring in our graduate psych program, uh-huh. that would be fun to have a conversation with him about that. Or if I got to go to the big leagues, I'd go to Newsworthy with Norsworthy well, to talk about that. One day, maybe you will. One day you will. Maybe. Maybe if I ever get good enough. I don't know. I, you're already good enough. Come on. What were you going to say? Now that we, well, now that we've been so honest and shining the light on uh, Rob, I, I want to turn the light on Richard as well. Mm-hmm. And when I was thinking about Richard uh, today, I thought, man, this is a guy that I've seen as an athlete. He played basketball in college. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a thespian. He was in several plays and musicals when he was, he was in college. He was. And Catherine Morris, uh, in the sh- who stars in the show Cold Case, that's been on for over a decade, I don't know how long, uh, he, uh, they were in a play together. <laughs> really? Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and here's a guy who's reading theology and psychology when he's a Bible major, and he's reading things that the professors, many of the professors, were not familiar with, and uh, including myself. When he was in my side class, he, again, he, he was uh, someone to be humble around. And the uh, and in regard, that's my segue to say, I see him as an incredibly humble person. That uh, when the scriptures talk about the idea that knowledge puffs up, um, Richard is one of the exceptions, or he has really gotten his pride under under control. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, so yeah. you've got two great people to talk about today. Yeah, those are. Yeah, it was great to have both of them in the room, and I, I kept telling myself the whole point is, Luke, just get out of the way and let them talk. Now, obviously, I did plenty of talking myself because that's just <laughs> what I do, but the point was it was really interesting to he- hear them go back and forth. And one of the, the – maybe the points of contention that they had between uh, – uh, and I think it was surface based on uh, Rob's book, Love Wins, which I would have loved to see him kind of flesh out, but I think – Richard might have been too polite and civil, and and I think we're just having too much of a good time for them to really maybe go back and forth. But I don't know if you caught this, but there was some point of contention about the issue of, uh, I think it was volition versus free will and determinism versus Calvinism. And, and as they were discussing kind of how love works, and Rob's theory was that love requires freedom, which is something a lot of us preachers have said over the years, love requires freedom. And Richard was kind of pushing back on that. Do you remember that point when we when, when he brought that oh, up? I do, yeah. And, and, I, and I do appreciate the way Richard uh, went into it. He used the word a point of contrast. Yes. And, 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 and to be fair to, to Rob, I, I think uh, the way I understood what he said was, well, in Love Wins, what he was trying to do was just throw out several different points, hoping that a few of those would stick for each reader. And so uh, I I started thinking about depth and breadth, and I would say, okay, so in Love Wins, Rob intentionally tried to focus a little bit more in breadth uh, in some of the areas, and in this one specific topic, Richard was ready to go into greater depth. So to Hmm. me, that's the contrast. Oh, that makes sense. So there's, but this is kind of a discussion. I know you and I have had it before where 
in the theological world, you create like a binary between you have free will and then you have, you know, quote unquote, God's sovereignty, which is really just a Calvinistic reading of sovereignty, not that's exactly what the Bible means every time the word sovereignty is used. But you have this you know, free will in which we have the ability to choose. Then you have this micromanaging God. And then in your world, you have the contrast between volition, determinism, where how much does someone really get to choose? And your perspective, and I think this is where Richard's coming from as well, is that we really don't have as much volition or freedom to, to make the choices that we think we can make. Whereas theologically, Many of us want to argue, no, there is free will, but from a psychological perspective, you want to say there's not really that much. And it's it's kind of like apples and oranges because it's a little bit different of a, of a question that you're asking, but it's very similar terminology, so it sounds like it's the same thing. But do you see a difference in those two debates, or do you think they actually are the same? Well, I, um, I, I would start off by saying yes, but I, I, I would say to simplify it and say that there's only one psychological position or only one theological or philosophical position, uh, I think that's too simplistic. Yeah. And so I think that they use the terms in different ways, and I think that that adds to some of the confusion uh, the area that I'm more comfortable with is talking about it in psychology. So I'm with Richard that uh, we probably are, and I'll use some different terms here, conditioned that uh, through our environmental, now uh, through our environment, if, uh, if we're talking about uh, behaviorism, we mentioned, you mentioned about uh, growing up and having stuff from Skinner all around the house. Uh, he's the radical behaviorist who basically says we do not have free will beyond freedom and dignity, uh, Walden too. Uh, and, and the whole idea here is that the environment operates on us through rewards and punishments. Consequently, uh, it even shapes what we think is volition. It mm-hmm. limits our choices and uh, we're conditioned to have preferences. So, so ultimately, he would end up saying, we don't have free will at all. Well, there are other psychologists that would say, now, wait a minute, but we also operate on the environment. Consequently, through volition, we are ex- exerting freedom. And now I'm going to jump. I don't even know which field uses this analogy, but I, I think of it as a tightrope. It's not unique to me, but it's that you've got one pole that's pulling on the rope that's free will, and the other one is determinism. Maybe God's sovereignty is over all of this, Um, but I I do think that we're probably more determined than many people recognize, though I do think that there are certain points in our life, and I'm going to go back to Richard Rohr, under uh, uh, great suffering, uh, we are allowed to deconstruct, or it helps us to start to deconstruct some of the things that we've already held to be true. Uh, I think it's through relationships and through our work. We've got about three main uh, things that many of us uh, go through that allow us to start seeing things differently. And consequently, if you can see things differently, now you have an opportunity to choose. Mm-hmm. So determinists are going to say, yeah, but you're, but, but you're already predetermined to make those choices. And I would say, okay, you may already be influenced, but I think uh, in the present you can 
make some some definite choices. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, if we can't choose, then either God is totally pulling all of our strings, and, and now I'm going to try to go with Rob here and say, I don't know that you can really understand love if you don't have uh, free will involved. Yeah. Think of it as a, as a marriage. How, how, how could you tell your partner really loves you uh, if they didn't have the choice to either express that or to choose not to do so? Yeah, it doesn't make sense. But it, it seems that some of the language of free will and God's sovereignty is more about your response to God. Like you have the ability to choose to accept God's love or not, and it seems, and this is obviously I'm I'm uh, I'm no professional in your field, but it seems like the determinist volition kind of debate from a psychological perspective is asking like the choices you make in the world and who you become and what you do, whereas the free will debate in my world is trying to determine how we as humans engage with the divine, and so it's it's somewhat similar, but it seems like it's there is a point of of discrepancy. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of the comparison between either we're a slave to righteousness or we're a slave to sin. Mm-hmm. Okay, to me, that implies some form of determinism. I also think of Second Corinthians in those first uh, four chapters uh, where it, it really is God the one, is the one who is renewing us. So in a sense, God is in control, but I think through our spiritual disciplines, it allows us to be opened up, and and our choice is to either be controlled by him or to not be controlled, and then we become a slave to all sorts of addictions. Mm -hmm. So when you're – okay, so if you're working with someone who's trying to, say, break out of an addiction – how much of this kind of stuff do you put on the table and say, well, you know, you're, uh, you're a product of the system that you're in and, and a lot of the choices you've made. Say, you're, you, say your addiction of choice is to you know, alcohol, okay? And so you were uh, predetermined to have a disposition that was very inclined towards alcoholism. This is what you were inclined to do, and so it's just natural that this is your drug of choice and you have an addictive personality that – creates this nasty shame uh, shame cycle that you're constantly in, and you don't have much choice about it. Is, like, how do, you, how do you engage with that in yeah, that context? Actually, just in the last couple of weeks, I started working with a person, uh, 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 and this is the presenting issue. And, I, you know, it's always about what is best for the, for the client? What is the best for this person that you're working with? And, and, and I'm not trying to be arrogant and imply that I always know that, but that's what I'm trying to do. And so if you're trying to build up a sense of self-efficacy, then you want to, you want to help them to recognize that, no, they actually chose this, but there are some things about human nature it says that what we're trying to do is to get our needs met. And at the time, if, if we're talking about alcohol, for example, dependency or alcohol use, uh, it, it, at the time, that may have been the very best way to get your needs met. And, uh, um, for example, the person that I'm referring to is actually dealing with chronic pain, which is the majority of the clients I work with. 
And so self-medication is a, is a very common choice. It's not that they're choosing to be controlled by alcohol. It's not that they're, con- they're choosing to even move into psychotic states or, you know, become dependent upon it. They're choosing to try to reduce their pain. So it's a question of, well, in what ways is it helping you? And did you really get to choose that? And is there a point to where you chose it, but then it started taking control and you truly became dependent upon it and you lost your free will? So let's see if we can figure out ways to back up and accomplish what you're trying to do. And in this example, learn to manage your pain more effectively that will help to maintain your uh, free will as much as possible and allow you to meet the needs you're trying to uh, have met. Yeah, okay. I mean, that, make, that makes sense. Okay, let's talk about a different uh, need that needs to be met. Okay, but when, before we do that, okay. uh, I do want to say another thing that Rob said about this idea about freedom. Okay. It's always from something for something. And I think that that's very consistent with the biblical view of change. What do you mean, uh, what do you mean by that? Four. Well, Ephesians 4 is the one, uh, and I'll just look at, at one particular verse. Uh, Ephesians 4.28 is the one, the example about the thief. The thief must stop stealing. Okay, so the theory of change is you've got to stop the old behavior, but a thief doesn't always steal. Just the cessation of stealing does not indicate that a change has occurred. But then he has to start working with his hands and start giving to those that are in need. Yeah. So by becoming, having the freedom from uh, stealing to the freedom for being able to uh, become a giver, change has truly occurred. And that's what we call reciprocal inhibitions. Uh, not exactly. <laughs> no, that's what you call it. <laughs> that's just a fancy word that you said that I I thought you were going to go to. Yeah, you said and that, that, and that is part of it. Yeah. <laughs> See, if you're a preacher, though, you just throw that word out, and no one's going to change. Yeah, you just, yeah, it sounds great. Nobody else knows the operational definition of it. Nah, it sounds good to me. Okay, okay. Let's talk about um, the section that Rob mentioned, where he talked about church being belief affirmation systems. Did you hear that part? Where he talks about we go to church, and one of the things that we seem to have a need that we want to have met is repeating what we always believe, and then we call that gospel preaching. Like we want to hear what we already know, and that's what is good preaching to us. Right, right. Which, on the one hand, yeah, I mean, we kind of need to be reminded of what we already know. And you know, there's a great conversation with uh, Zach Lynn the last time he was on. He was just on... Uh, a couple of days ago, but before that, he talked about you go to church because you don't need to hear something new, but you need to be reminded of what you already know. And there's a beautiful thing about like church reminds you of what you already know. But sometimes it can become kind of overdone where we just want to hear the same thing over and over again, and we don't want to explore and we don't want to go to new things. And that's kind of what Rob touched on is why like the evangelical church could be a house of cards. Right, right. And so what so, he – go ahead. Yeah, so so if uh, – and again, look, I, a lot of my thinking is influenced from, from listening to uh, Richard Rohr all, uh, and reading Falling Upward, uh, but uh, I'm trying to keep it 
using the same terminology that's in in many of your other podcasts. But yeah, it, it, there's a there is that point where we have constructed Freudian terminology is interjection, where you just accept what you have been taught and believed, and it is very reassuring, reinforcing. Uh, to go and and have familiarity. So if we go and we've got it in a nice, neat little package, then don't disrupt this because I'm comfortable with it. Now, there are some things that are within that uh, training that we have received uh, that is true about God and true about who we are. And so uh, even when we go to reconstruct, uh, many of those things we're going to carry over. So those are things that we do need to continue to be reminded of. On the other hand, uh, the idea of going through a phase of deconstruction, I think you are more the expert. You and, and I'll say you and Rob representing theologians, there is a point to where uh, maybe from the classes or from the pulpit, You've got to help us deconstruct some of the things that we thought were true that just were really more tied into our personal experience or the generation in which we grew up in, and there's all sorts of illustrations about that, and I'll just pick one simple one is like sexism, that growing up in the United States uh, in a male-dominated culture uh, it feels good to, to be in a privileged position if you're male. On the other hand, there's a point where we need to be challenged that that's not consistent with God's nature. That's not the reality that God is calling us to, and we need to have that reconstructed. Yeah. So yeah. We're, we're talking about a bit, an overarching kind of view of our, our spiritual exploration. Yeah, and I think— it requires an assumption that faith is this ongoing exploration. It is this ongoing journey or this, this uh, long obedience in the same direction, like that you are really going somewhere instead of believing that, that your faith is about accumulating a certain list of beliefs. And that means you're in, it means moving away from like religion and spirituality is about getting just the right thinking. But it's like, this is more than just you thinking a certain set of beliefs. And I loved how Rob was talking about, Church often is built around, you know, those three or 12 or 10 or whatever great number you want to come up with of these are the core tenets of it instead of what Rob is pushing for, which I think Jesus is pushing for as well, because Jesus never says you've got to have these things and and remember these things about me and these will be the right things that that get you in. But instead, Jesus is saying, here's a table. And this is the body broken and the blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he points towards the table as a centerpiece. And that completely changes how you understand faith when it's around a table instead of around a list of ideas that you can all, you know, parse and break down and disagree on and debate about instead of a meal, which everyone has to just experience together. Uh, I, I'm going to make a loose association to that. I'd be glad to come back to the table, but the topic really speaks loudly to me because uh, in my generation, at 66, uh, my generation, it was about getting the facts right. And the more truth that you knew, 
the, the more power you had. The more you thought correctly, the more you were close to God. You will know my disciples, not by their love, but by their knowledge. Mm-hmm. And obviously nobody really said that, but that is part of the way I interpreted the, the common meth- message uh, through my training. Mm-hmm. And today, millennials, I don't know that that's really the most important message. I mean, there's so much knowledge and access to information that, uh, that even though uh, we preached in public schools that knowledge is power and all of those kind of things, and we're all trying to gain more knowledge, uh, the reality of it is millennials may be looking at that a little bit differently, um, and, and that could be a very good thing, that they want to have more of the experience. And the experience not only is knowledge, but it's also behavior. It's a, a behavioral manifestation of what you believe. Okay. So if you've got someone uh, from my generation, I know there's a lot of people who listen to this podcast who are young pastors, and they're trying to say, okay, I want to push for this. I want it to be about the table. I want it to be about experience. I want it to be about orthopraxy. And they're in churches that are being led by people who are your demographic, your age, who have been taught that it is about knowledge. That's where your power is. That's where truth is. That's what blah, blah, blah. And they're trying to articulate, no, let's push towards this. How can they communicate that to people who have been wired in the way you've been wired in such a way that they don't get kicked out of the room? Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, I, I think that it's, it's the emphasis of uh, helping us to, to the difference between belief and faith. That when you start talking to me about what do you believe, and it's like, okay, yeah, I got all that right. Uh, not that I do, but I may. No, I, I get you saying. I'm, I'm representing, yeah, what a lot of people assume, that they've accumulated a large percentage of what is right. But that doesn't mean that they know how to use it. It doesn't mean that they know how to to, to understand it. And uh, and so I think what what has to be challenged is the question: So what? What do you do with that? What does? How is that making a difference? Oh well, if I know that uh, love is what I'm going to be known for, what Christians are going to be known for, then how do I manifest that love? Mm-hmm. What is what are the behaviors of love? How am I going to treat uh, people? And uh, now let me go back to uh, the Eucharist. So if we're at the Lord's Supper, see, I feel a lot more comfortable you passing me that little single piece of plastic and just getting very reductionistic down to it's me and just taking it, but you helping to remind me that if I act this out, uh, if I really see my connection with my brothers and sisters, uh, then we are truly experiencing the love and the grace of Christ. Yeah. Okay. I, I, yeah. Let me ask Keep you more. Going. I, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here even thinking about simple things like raising our hands. My generation's uncomfortable with that. And part of it is, at least the way I think about it, is, wait a minute. I know that right now I'm supposed to be worshiping in my heart, and if I'm singing and I'm focused on the meaning of the words, I can actually close my eyes and concentrate on the meaning of the words, and I 
actually the more I manifest that through my body, the less I'm taking away my focus of my thoughts. That's Hmm. not a true statement, but that's what I tend to think. So I falsely have the the thought that goes through my mind. If I'm raising my hands, I'm being showy, I'm being superficial, and I'm distracting myself away from concentrating on the right thinking. Hmm. Interesting. Okay, let me ask you the, the other side of the question. If we're asking, okay, what is... You know, what is someone who's trying to encourage someone who comes from a different generation to think about this? What if we're not just asking them what they can do or how they can get on board with us, but what about the other side of that? What about what are some shortcomings to this way of acting and living that it would be easy for us to be naive about? Because it's not like one perspective is always right. It's not like there's not like beauty in both sides of this because there is something about like truth and there's something beauty beautiful about like understanding in this quest to understand who God is and beliefs can can be helpful they create a good framework for you and so what what do you see as someone who's been taught okay no 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 do it this way as you hear this other way coming on board what do you say well there's clearly some holes in that there're definitely some flaws that you might be missing yeah i, I well i and uh since we are talking about Rob, in the context of Rob and Richard, uh, both of them really talked about some powerful experiences that they've had. And I think one of the ways Rob said it was, well, you make a connection, you make room for another person. And I think you asked him a similar kind of question, and he said, yeah, well, watch what happens after the service and that those people are now standing around talking to each other. Uh, Richard, when the Freedom Riders came through, what he was saying was not just the Freedom Riders, but the students, the other people that participated in that uh, activity with them, that that brought about a sense of welcome and openness that might not have been there otherwise. And I think that's true. So people... Uh, let's say, uh, from your generation, that's much more comfortable in having a more interactive uh, sacrament, then take advantage of it. When you say this is the blood and this is the body of Christ in their own terms, you also try to open the door to where you uh, understand what's going on with that person, and then after the service, you follow up and go right back to what they said and said, you know, here's what you said when we were taking the Lord's Supper. Tell me more about that. Help me understand that. Keep that door open and become accessible to them. Hmm. That's good. That's good. All right, Dad, we we're running out of time real fast. Okay. We got to wrap this up. I didn't even get to let you ask some stuff you want to talk about with the uh, the podcast. What did what did what did you have on the docket that you definitely want to mention? Well, I, I you know I just uh, kind of tell me a little bit uh, about where the podcast is going. What uh, what are your thoughts after doing maybe a hundred plus shows at this point? Hmm. That's a that's a really good question and. You know, I've had a handful of people you know, interacting with me about the podcast and, you know, what are you doing with it and, and tell me more. And, and the assumption is like that I have 
this microphone because I have a voice that I want to get things out. And I guess I do, after 100 episodes, I'm starting to find my voice and to figure out, like, this is what I'm saying. And I'm realizing that, like, the community that, that seems to have rallied around this podcast or the people who have constructed something that they call faith that didn't work, there was a deconstruction period and they had to reconstruct something. And that is kind of like the, the common theme that I think is woven through this. And so I continue wanting to speak to that. And this microphone is an opportunity to speak into that group. But really the microphone is not to amplify my voice as much as the microphone amplifies my curiosity. And so I'm so, there's still a lot of things that I'm curious about. And the reason I have the the microphone is that I would want to talk to these people regardless if it was being broadcast to a bunch of people. I just want to talk to them. And so it's an excuse for me to have conversations that I want to have. Um, and so as long as I'm curious about stuff, I, I continue to want to do this. And I don't know what, um, you know, what I'm going to be curious about three months from now. I can tell you there's some stuff I'm really curious about over the next uh, couple of weeks, couple of months that I want to do. And um, I don't want to... You want to elaborate about any of those? No, because I don't have them confirmed okay. yet. I've got... Okay. I've got a couple that I'm really excited about that, that um, I, you know, I don't want to... Uh, talk about my hens before they hatch isn't there some sort of farmism that i that i need to uh, ascribe to in that situation you did grow up on a farm yeah yeah sure in philadelphia yeah <laughs> there's a good farm out there but uh no it's um it's it, it's been great and i look forward to seeing where it goes i um for me it's always just i've got a couple of podcasts scheduled and i'm looking forward to those and i've got a couple in the bag that i think everyone's gonna be really interested in i'm trying to get um do some more in the Enneagram. I've got uh, I've got a person I'm actually going to call as soon as I get off this podcast and try to uh, schedule something with with her about um, kind of elaborating more on some of the stuff that Roar and I talked about with uh, the Enneagram and yeah, some more stuff. I, I just don't want to tease them because they're not completely sure, scheduled sure. yet. Yeah. Well, that's to me. It they're always. Uh... Even though there may not be anything new under the sun, there may be new ways to talk about the things that are under the sun, yeah. both S-U-N and S-O-N. And, I see what uh, you did there, Dan. I think you're going to be able to continue to communicate and, and help a, a number of people. Um, so, boy, I, I just want to encourage you to keep doing this. Thanks, and Dan. it may be that you're riding the wave of how God is working through a variety of other people so you may not even know what those topics are it may be that god just opens the door for you to speak with these individuals and because of your curiosity uh and your desire to to want to know more about god and and what he's revealing to us um hopefully god will continue to use this show to to allow that to unfold well thanks dad i appreciate that you've got the good work yeah thanks dad well uh this has been fun as always Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.